Hey, Reveal listeners, if you've been listening to American Rehab, you don't need me to tell you about the importance of great investigative journalism. It really helps us when our listeners rate and review us on Apple Podcasts. It's so easy to do, and it helps others find our show. So we've got a bonus for the next 200 people who review us, Reveal Tote Bags. Like our t-shirts, they're simple and elegant, dark blue with the word facts written across the front in bold type. So here's what you got to do. Text the word REVIEW to 474747, and we'll give you instructions on how to get one while supplies last. Again, text the word REVIEW to 474747. You can text STOP at any time, and standard rates apply. And when you leave the review, if you want to tell them that Al Ledson is your all-time favorite host, I mean, I'm not, I'm not going to be mad at that. Thank you so much for your review on Apple Podcasts. It makes a huge difference. From the Center for Investigative Reporting and PRX, this is Reveal. I'm Al Ledson. Over the past month, protests have helped give unprecedented attention to the issue of police brutality. But right-wing extremists are also trying to seize the moment. At a Black Lives Matter rally in Richmond, Virginia, a man claiming to be a KKK leader drove his truck into a group of protesters. In Oakland, a California man who follows the online Boogaloo movement allegedly shot and killed a federal security officer. They want to kick off chaos. And they want to start the race war. And so they're always waiting for some chaotic event to happen that'll help them kick this off. Megan Squire is a computer scientist who studies online extremism at Elon University in North Carolina. She's seen firsthand how the recent wave of protests and counter-protests can get out of control. Someone protesting the removal of Confederate monuments recently punched her in the face. Megan says right-wing extremists are using what's in the news to spread their message. They track pretty closely to whatever the news headlines are. And then what they do is provide the racist, anti-Semitic, fill-in-the-blank spin on that news. All of these belief systems are like big funnels. They have a variety of ways of recruiting people into them. That's David Nywert, a reporter with the nonprofit newsroom Type Investigations. A few years ago, Reveal teamed up with Type to track every single domestic terror event from 2008 to 2016. It showed that law enforcement was focused on extremists acting in the name of Islam. But homegrown right-wing terror was a bigger threat by a nearly two-to-one margin. We were trying to make the point that really right-wing extremism is a much bigger problem than Islamist extremism and that the government needs to be paying attention to it. Now, we've updated the database to include attacks from 2017 to 2019. We found that white extremist terror has grown and become more lethal, responsible for almost the same number of deaths during the first three years of the Trump presidency as during all of the Obama years. And though right-wing extremists appear to target different groups, many are driven by the same ideology. There's a very specific stripe of white nationalism that we're seeing run through, especially these more recent mass killings. Today, we're going to connect the dots and show how one act of terror inspires another, thanks to online platforms. And we'll ask why law enforcement is still struggling to catch up. Reveal reporters Stan Alcorn and Prisca Neely have been digging into this for months. Prisca starts us off with a story of a man who witnessed the deadliest domestic terror attack from last year. Guillermo Glenn is well-known in El Paso's Mexican-American community. He's 79 now, and he's been a community organizer and labor rights activist for most of his life. We conducted a lot of protests. We blocked the bridge. We went to jail. On August 3rd, 2019, he was just going about his weekend routine. It was a Saturday morning, right, and around 10 o'clock, so I'd gone to Walmart to buy some pet food, and I was way in the back, and I heard this great big noise. A warning, Guillermo is going to share graphic details about what happened that day. 
A large number of families, women and men, were running towards me from the front of the building. And then I noticed at least one of the women was dripping blood. I said, well, there's something really wrong. I ran into the woman who was, she had both her legs had received some type of shrapnel or bullet wounds, and she was bleeding. So I stopped there to help her, and I grabbed a, a first aid kit and tried to at least tend to her wounds on her legs. One of the firemen or paramedic came and told you, you have to get her out. We're getting everybody out of the store. So we put her in, a, in one of those uh, grocery baskets. When he wheeled the woman to the front, he saw what had happened. Right at the front door, there was a lot of blood. I knew then that there had been a shooter. It was a very traumatic scene. You know, I saw the, the body of a man with half his head shot off. Uh, there was a lady laying on the pavement across from where we're loading the people. I didn't know exactly who he had taken out. But I didn't have that information that he was actually shooting Mexicans. The suspected gunman, 21-year-old Patrick Crucius, drove roughly 10 hours from outside Dallas to the El Paso Walmart right near the Mexican border. Police say he opened fire. 23 people were killed, and many were wounded. And then he drove off. Minutes later, Patrick Crucius stopped his car at an intersection near the Walmart. He came out with his hands raised in the air and stated out loud to the Texas Rangers, I'm the shooter. He's facing 90 federal charges, including 45 hate crimes. After Guillermo witnessed what happened that day, he got in his car and went to the restaurant where his friends always gather on Saturdays. Several of my friends came up and hugged me and said, oh, you're okay, we're so glad we've been looking for you. We thought you might be there. And then they showed me the manifesto. The manifesto. Minutes before the attack, the shooter had posted a document filled with anti-immigrant rhetoric to the online message board 8chan. Some of Guillermo's friends showed him a copy. So I sat down, I had some food, had some my regular Saturday menudo. And then I finally realized what had happened right after I read the manifesto. The Crucius Manifesto reads kind of like a corporate website. It has an about me section and parts where he outlines his warped vision for America. He matter-of-factly explains how his attack will preserve a world where white people have the political and economic power. He says peaceful means will no longer achieve his goal. Reporter David Nywart says this alleged shooter is the quintessential Trump-era terrorist, a man largely radicalized online, entrenched in white nationalist ideology, and fueled by the belief that white men like himself are being replaced by Latino immigrants. Crucius wrote that the media would blame President Trump for inspiring him, but he claimed that his ideas predated the Trump campaign. Here's David. Patrick Crucius especially was so filled with loathing for Latino people that he didn't see them as human. When David reads the manifesto, he can immediately see the fingerprints of other white nationalists. Here's how Crucius opens his manifesto. In general, I support the Christchurch shooter and his manifesto. This attack is a response to the Hispanic invasion of Texas. They are the instigators, not me. I am simply defending my country from cultural and ethnic replacement brought on by an invasion. That opening line is a direct signal back to a previous act of terrorism, the shooter who killed 51 people at two mosques in Christchurch, New Zealand, just months before. David says this is part of a trend. One terrorist inspires another, and the cycle continues. Guillermo says he didn't understand all of the references at first, but it was clear to him that the manifesto had ties to a larger movement. I think he was trying to show that somebody had to take action and 
that really angered me at that point. Why would somebody come and shoot innocent people like that? David says Crucius started doing online research because of the anger he felt over how the country was changing demographically. But in the process of doing this research, he came across multiple white genocide theories, including the Great Replacement. The Great Replacement, or replacement theory, unites many acts of hate that we see across the country, around the world. And that's this idea that comes out of white nationalism, that white Europeans face a global genocide at the hands of brown people and that they're being slowly rubbed out of existence. Only a few terrorists in recent years have referenced replacement theory by name, but it's widely popular among right-wing extremists. It's linked to ideas that are many decades old. But one attack in Europe showed how those ideas can be weaponized. Anders Breivik's terrorism attack in Oslo and Utøya Island, Norway, in 2011. Breivik killed 77 people in a bombing and mass shooting. Before the attack, he sent out a 1,500-page manifesto about how he planned to lead white supremacists on a crusade against the, quote, Islamification of Europe. Around the same time, a French writer named Renan Camus refined and popularized the ideology in a book. The title translates to The Great Replacement. And The Great Replacement essentially is this idea that brown people, particularly refugees and immigrants from Arab countries in Europe, are being deliberately brought into the country in order to replace white people as the chief demographic. And the conspiracy theory claims all this is orchestrated by a cabal of nefarious globalists. That's code for Jews. You will not replace us! You will not replace us! You will not replace us! And in August 2017, white supremacists in the U.S. took up this concept as a rallying cry at the Unite the Right rally in Charlottesville, Virginia. Jews will not replace us! The next day, a neo-Nazi drove his car into a crowd and killed 32-year-old Heather Heyer. This incident had an immediate impact on the public perception of terrorism, making it clear that white nationalist violence is a serious threat. Today, the nightmare has hit home here in the city of Pittsburgh. At a Pittsburgh synagogue in 2018, Robert Bowers is accused of killing 11 people He went to a Jewish synagogue because he was angry about the Latin American caravans. The caravans had been in all the news in the weeks prior to that synagogue attack. You know, he blamed Jews and went to a Jewish synagogue to take revenge for Latino immigration. These are the ideologies that are zigzagging across the globe. In March 2019... The gunman who live-streamed his mass shooting in Christchurch, New Zealand on Facebook also wrote a manifesto. The title? The Great Replacement. The New Zealand manifesto inspired the El Paso shooter to target the people he felt were replacing him. Recent manifestos and books put a new spin on violent, hateful acts. But David traces these sentiments back much further. What's remarkable in a lot of ways when I read these manifestos is so many of them are expressing ideas that I read in the 1920s coming from eugenicists. Look, I would even take it back to the 1890s when we first started seeing the wave of lynchings in the South as a form of social control. This is very clearly a form of terrorism. After the El Paso shooting, activist Guillermo Glenn says white supremacist ideology was barely part of the conversation. There were brief efforts to unite the community against hate, a few events held under the banner El Paso Strong. The politicians, the businessmen, the mayor, everybody was pushing this idea that we had to survive 
you know, but they weren't really talking about who caused it or why. Before we talked for this story, Guillermo says he didn't identify as part of this larger group of survivors that includes Jewish and Muslim communities. You know, and you say, well, it's, it's the Jewish people that they attacked. It's the Muslim people that they attacked. And here on the border, it's the Mexican and Central Americans. But nobody talks about what does the Great Replacement mean? Nobody put all these incidences together and say, hey, this is something that we should be aware of nationally. And he says that's part of the failure, part of the reason these attacks keep happening. That story from Reveal's Prisca Neely. As we've been saying, these extremist groups are using online communities to spread their messages and find new recruits. When we come back, we'll hear how it works. It's a conditioning process. It's a grooming process. And I let myself fall into that. The evolution of the white supremacist internet. Next on Reveal. Reveal is brought to you by the University of Virginia and the Sacred and Profane podcast. We often hear it's not polite to bring up religion, but we lose so much when we don't talk about religion. Sacred and Profane is a podcast that isn't afraid to tackle religion. Next up, how white Christians built and maintained Confederate monuments across the U.S. Sacred and Profane is produced by the Religion, Race, and Democracy Lab at the University of Virginia. Catch season two wherever you listen to podcasts. Support for Reveal comes from Blinds.com. Transforming your home into even more of a sanctuary is easy and affordable with Blinds.com. They make it simple to shop top-quality blinds, shades, and interior shutters from home with easy online ordering and free shipping. Blinds.com has helped millions of homeowners through the process, and they guarantee the perfect fit whether you DIY or have them install everything for you. Go right now and see how much you can save at Blinds.com. Rules and restrictions may apply. From the Center for Investigative Reporting and PRX, this is Reveal. I'm Al Letson. The FBI and academic researchers say there's no such thing as a terrorist profile. You can't tell who's going to become a terrorist with a personality test or a demographic checklist. But the young white men who attacked the synagogues in Pittsburgh and Poway and the Walmart in El Paso, they had a lot in common. Not only were they motivated by the same conspiracy theory about white people being replaced, they developed those ideas in some of the same spaces online. Two of them even posted their manifestos to the same website, 8chan. Now, you can't blame today's white supremacist terrorism on the Internet, but you also can't understand it without talking about the way the white supremacist movement uses the internet and how that's changed over the last decade. Reveal Stan Alcorn is going to tell that story through the eyes of a man who lived it. Here's Stan. Josh Bates' decade as a white supremacist started in his mid-20s with a YouTube video about the presidential candidate he says he supported at the time, Barack Obama. I was scrolling through the comments section you know, he's, he's a Muslim, he wasn't born here, things of that nature. And somebody said, you guys sound like those Stormfront assholes. And I was like, what in the world is Stormfront? Stormfront is a message board that a former KKK leader set up in the 90s. Josh says he went there at first because he was curious, then to argue. But then the middle-aged message board neo-Nazis started winning him over. How could they be convincing in these arguments? Like, can you help me understand that? Well, it's, uh, I wish I could answer that question because I still ask myself that a lot. How, how could I end up falling for something like that? But I guess it's probably similar to how we look at people who fall into cults. You know, it's a conditioning process. It's a grooming process. And I let myself fall into that. The experts I talk to say that first step is more about the person than what they're stepping into. Josh had just left the Marines. 
where he used to have a team and a mission. Now all he had was a computer. It's pretty concurrent with a whole lot of people where they felt really deeply disempowered in their lives. Shannon Martinez is a former white supremacist who's helped people, including Josh, leave the movement. And so when you encounter information that's presented that this is like the real truth, the true truth people don't want you to have, because if you did, it would be too empowering for you and too disempowering for them. Like, that's an incredibly powerful, like, toxic drug. That drug, widely available on the internet, is at its heart a conspiracy theory. It says, your problems aren't your fault. It's immigrants, Black people, Jews. They talk about, oh, you know, Hollywood and the media, all these Jews that are in these positions of power. And, you know, when you Google that kind of stuff and you see it and you consume it, eventually, after a few months, it kind of gets desensitized to it. And everybody's agreeing with everyone for the most part. You know, you, you get along. There's that online community. Um, Stormfront was kind of my first one. He didn't know their names, but they were his team now. He'd spend the next 10 years as what he calls a keyboard warrior for the white supremacist movement. He'd be there for every step in its evolution, from joining the KKK and the neo-Nazi National Socialist Movement to more diffuse groups and websites that called themselves alt-right and identitarian. Some of these groups would go to some lengths to appear respectable and say, we're not racists, we're not Nazis, we're not the KKK. Mm-hmm. And then some of those groups were Nazis. They were the KKK. Mm-hmm. And you were in all of them. Does that tell you that the differences between these groups are more about that image and the tactics than Absolutely. the core ideas or who they attract? Absolutely. We've been using the terms white nationalism 1.0 and white nationalism 2.0. Uh, for a few years now. And 1.0 is your early groups, you know, Ku Klux Klan. They're, they're very explicit national socialist movement walking around with swastikas on their uniforms and their flags. And your 2.0 guys, they're your identity Europas where they're dressing in uh, khakis and uh, collared shirts and dock shoes. And they've got these uh, nice cropped haircuts. They call it good optics. But anybody who was in the early 1.0 movements like myself, I could see right through it. You know, they just put lipstick on a pig. That's all they did. But people who followed the white supremacist movement for decades, like Type Investigations reporter David Nywert, they say that this alt-right makeover of the old racist right, it was transformative. That radical right was very backward-looking, very stiff and formal. They didn't have any humor, was not part of their repertoire. In fact, their primary recruitment demographic really was men between the ages of 40 and 60. With the advent of the alt-right, what we saw was this very tech-savvy, very agile movement that instead of running away from sort of the culturally savvy component aspects of the internet, rather embraced them wholly. Instead of writing racist newsletters that people had to sign up for, they were making memes and jokes in places like Reddit and 4chan. And these forums that celebrated being politically incorrect, they were the perfect place for those ideas to take root, hybridize with other fringe ideas, and grow into something that could be shared on more mainstream platforms like Twitter and Facebook. And it was, you know, very brilliant because it meant that suddenly their recruitment demographic was much larger and had, you know, a lot more political activist energy. Uh, They were younger people. And Josh Bates says that energy got a huge boost in 2016 with the rise of a new presidential candidate. They're bringing drugs. They're bringing crime. They're rapists. And some, I assume, are good people. Because Trump was spouting off a lot of the same talking points as general white nationalists, he breathed new life into that movement. And the thought leaders of the movement just took full advantage, thinking that they could take it even further. And and they did. They started to take their ideas into the real world. After Trump's election in 2017, computer scientist Megan Squire set up software to track extremists on Facebook. 
She'd started out studying the misogynist Gamergate movement. But that had led her to all of these different anti-Muslim and neo-Confederate and white supremacist groups. At the time, Facebook was a central player, if not the central player. And um, it was the place where these guys all wanted to be. And I was looking for a crossover, ideological crossover, group membership crossover, just trying to, I guess, um, map the ecosystem of hate on Facebook. She watched this ecosystem plan what one neo-Nazi website would call the summer of hate. Anti-Muslim marches, misogynist Proud Boy rallies, and what was shaping up to be this real-world meetup of all these different mostly online hate groups. The Unite the Right rally in Charlottesville, Virginia. And this is where she came across Josh Bates. There was a person who was talking about they didn't have enough money to go to Charlottesville. And that someone else suggested, hey, we have this crowdfunding site. Why don't you set up a fundraiser? When Megan clicked the link, she saw this whole list of white supremacist fundraisers on a website Josh had built because GoFundMe had started cutting them off. It was the beginning of what Megan calls alt-tech. At the time we're talking about alt-tech was basically just replacements that were coded and controlled by people probably in the movement or close to the movement or at least like didn't care about white supremacists (laughs) using their services. So they were replacing Patreon with Hatreon. Like, it's kind of a one-to-one match there. But when it came to advertising the rally, the alt-right didn't need alt-tech. They had a Facebook event page, and it was being promoted by hate groups that Facebook had allowed to remain on the site, even after they were reported by civil rights advocates. I mean, I'm a solo researcher with a laptop in rural North Carolina, and I was able to find well over 2,000 hate groups operating on Facebook in like a couple of months. So, you know, I don't have a lot of sympathy that Facebook didn't know it was happening, right? Like, that's ridiculous. Megan decided to go to the rally in person, in part to see if this convergence of hate she was seeing on Facebook would happen in real life. Josh Bates went for the same reason. Never in the history of white nationalism had there been that many people all showing up at one place. You know, you had NSM, Ku Klux Klan, Fidelity Europa, all these groups. It's like all the groups that you'd ever been a member of. Yeah, pretty much. And when you see that many people show up to support a common cause, it kind of fills you up a little bit with maybe a little enthusiasm, like, hey, maybe this isn't dying. Maybe this uh, maybe this could go forward. That's exactly right. I believe that. That's exactly why you have to shut that stuff down, because, <laughs> ooh, this is not the kind of people we need to be amassing power. The rally wasn't shut down. But when it turned violent and a white supremacist killed Heather Heyer, Reporter David Nywert says this whole plan to unite the racist right backfired. All of these groups started splitting. There was huge infighting over whether they did the right thing. And in fact, the social media platforms actually then began taking it seriously, although that seriousness (laughs) varied from platform to platform. It reminded me of like when you catch a kid doing something they're not supposed to be doing and all of a sudden they're incredibly sorry. But they already did it. You know, there wasn't a whole lot of foresight there. They're sorry after the fact. It's a pattern we've seen over and over in the last few years. A terrorist attack happens. The social media platforms put out statements, but don't fundamentally change their policies. On YouTube, you can still find old video manifestos from right-wing domestic terrorists. Facebook didn't ban white nationalist content, until a year and a half after Charlottesville. The main step they did take at the time was to remove the accounts of a bunch of individual users and groups. But that means I don't get to just clap my hands, okay, we're done here, good job, they got deplatformed, because my job is to worry about where they're going to go next. You would push them off of platforms like Twitter, and they would just go off and create their own new platform, and they called it Gab, and it was just straight for white nationalists. And it was on Gab, for instance, that the man who conducted the Terrorism Act against the Tree of Life uh, synagogue did most of his organizing. He networked with other white nationalists and had a long string of racist and anti-Semitic posts 
before his infamous final message, screw your optics, I'm going in. On these alternative platforms, they could talk as though they didn't have to fear censors uh, or monitors or people looking over their shoulders. So they were much more open and explicit about their hatefulness. And not just their hatefulness, but frankly, their lust for violence. The rhetoric became incredibly violent on a lot of these smaller platforms. And this journey, trying to go mainstream, only to retreat back to the violent fringe, it's the journey Josh made, too. And that's kind of this trajectory of going from white nationalism 1.0, white nationalism 2.0, and then things just crumbling apart, going underground, and finding this thing called The Base. The Base is a neo-Nazi network with an explicit focus on real-world violence. They shared bomb-making manuals and planned paramilitary trainings to prepare for a coming race war. When news broke that 11 people had been murdered at the Tree of Life synagogue, they talked about it in terms of tactics. Josh wrote in their private chat, infrastructure is what needs targeting. Small hits like yesterday's, while striking fear into many, that only ultimately served to embolden the enemy while they're still strong. Yeah, see, I don't even, I don't even remember saying that. And I guess that goes to show that I was, I was playing a role, in a sense. And uh, it's just, you start to play this role and you start getting into it. That's the sound of someone who was enthralled with the idea of being a hero. That's how the whole heroism dynamic works, is that you are playing a role. You've created this image for yourself of being the hero, and now it's really important for you to live up to it. And this is how people who've been radicalized can get talked into committing acts of violence is that they feel like they have to they have to prove that they are the heroes they've made themselves out to be in their own minds Josh left the base's chat room in November of 2018 he says he was turned off by all the glorification of violence a couple weeks after that, Atlanta anti-fascists published an article exposing his long history in the white supremacist movement. And within days, he was tweeting that he was out of the movement for good. Looking back now, I don't see myself staying in the movement, no matter uh, getting doxxed or not. It's just, it's tiring. You know, I, I just don't, uh, and obviously everything about it is wrong in the, in the ideological and racial, uh, social sense, everything about it is wrong. Um, but, yeah. Other men who stayed in the base would go on to be arrested for vandalizing a synagogue, plotting to murder a couple they believed were Antifa activists, and trying to start a civil war at a gun rights rally in Virginia. The FBI says the greatest terrorist threat in the United States today comes from what they call lone offenders, terrorists who get their radical ideas from online communities, who attack without ever coordinating with anyone else in the real world. According to our database, they're responsible for nearly half the terrorist fatalities since Trump took office. It's a list that includes the Tree of Life shooter Robert Bowers, the Poway Synagogue shooter John Ernest, and the El Paso Walmart shooter Patrick Crucius. A lot of people will be exposed to these same ideas and not respond in a violent way, but it doesn't take very many of them to actually cause a whole lot of harm. For law enforcement, the tricky question here is, how can you tell from what someone says online that they're actually going to commit an act of violence? But for the rest of us, there's a different question that's maybe even trickier. What do we do when people say things online that might help push other people to commit acts of violence? Josh said several times in our interview that over the course of his 10 years in the white supremacist movement, he only spent a grand total of maybe five days doing things in the real world. His role was setting up websites, organizing online, and writing propaganda like an article he wrote for altright.com, where he told his fellow white people to, quote, rekindle your inner hate, and that an honorable death must be earned. You've talked about this saying that you didn't do anything, you were just writing things. 
But just as you were radicalized through reading things online, so was Robert Bowers, so is yep. John yep. Ernest, so is Patrick Crucius. Mm-hmm. Isn't writing something doing something? And, and do you well, think... What I mean by doing something is IRL, like actually getting out to the street. That's what I mean by doing something. But he's starting to think that distinction doesn't really make a difference. I didn't actually go out and get any street brawls or physically attack anybody, but that's no different than writing something and encouraging others to do it. You know what I mean? Um, I would have considered myself, in a way, a domestic terrorist because I I was spouting off some of these same ideas. And, you know, it's, it feels so weird to, to, to reference yourself in that, in that way. But, you know, I have to be honest. The things Josh did may not meet the FBI or the Department of Justice's definition of terrorism. They didn't even get him kicked off social media. But he says he'll be making up for them for the rest of his life. That story was from Reveal's Stan Alcorn. We reached out to Facebook for a comment. They sent us a statement saying that they don't want to be a place for promoting hate or violence and that they're making progress. They told us in the first three months of 2020, they banned more than 250 white supremacist organizations and removed 4.7 million pieces of content tied to organized hate. We reached out to YouTube and the Global Internet Forum to counter terrorism as well, but they didn't respond. If social media companies aren't stopping white supremacist terrorism, what about the U.S. government? That's after the break on Reveal. From the Center for Investigative Reporting and PRX, this is Reveal. I'm Al Letson. A year after Josh Bates left the white supremacist group The Base, another member of the organization shot a video of himself speaking into a camera, wearing a gas mask. He was calling on white people to acquire weapons, derail trains, and poison water supplies in order to ensure the survival of the white race. Later, a federal judge outside of Washington, D.C., would read a transcript of that video into the record before prosecutors held a press conference. As the evidence gathered by the FBI demonstrates, these defendants, who were self-proclaimed members of the white supremacist group, The Base, were dedicated to the idea of doing harm to African Americans, Jewish Americans, and others who the defendant viewed as a threat to their twisted idea of a white ethno-state. Put simply, this domestic terrorism investigation likely saved lives. But this, law enforcement stopping white supremacist terrorism before it happens, has been the exception. According to the database we put together with Type Investigations, since 2008, law enforcement has stopped about one in three terror plots by white supremacists and other right-wing extremists, Meanwhile, they've stopped terror plots by those claiming to act in the name of Islam at more than twice that rate. They've stopped three out of every four of those. In other words, the FBI seems to do a better job going after terrorists whose ideas resemble the 9-11 attackers than the right-wing terrorists who've killed far more people in the two decades since. But in the last year, reporter David Nywert says... The FBI's statements and arrests seem to show a shift towards taking white supremacist terrorism more seriously. It's very clear that the FBI has caught on that this is a problem. But it's also very clear that they have a lot of catching up to do. And getting the FBI to describe how it's catching up isn't easy. Here's Reveal's Stan Alcorn again. In theory, there are people who can force the FBI to explain itself. Congress. But Congress has not always been focused on white supremacist terrorism either. For instance, this hearing from 2011. Good morning. The Committee on Homeland Security will come to order. 
led by Republican congressman from New York, Peter King. This committee cannot live in denial, which is what some of us would do when they suggest that this hearing dilute its focus by investigating threats unrelated to al-Qaeda. The Department of Homeland Security and this committee were formed in response to the al-Qaeda attacks of September 11th. There is no equivalency of threat between al-Qaeda and neo-Nazis, environmental extremists, or other isolated madmen. Actually, there were more than twice as many right-wing domestic terror incidents that year as anything inspired by groups like al-Qaeda, according to our data. And now it's my privilege to uh, recognize the uh, distinguished ranking member of the committee, the gentleman from Mississippi, Mr. Thompson. The ranking member, or top Democrat, Benny Thompson. Thank you very much, uh, Mr. Chairman. Had a different perspective. I understand that our personal experiences play a role in how we see the world. We've all come to this place from somewhere else. I'm from Mississippi. He'd become the first black mayor of his hometown in 1973, a place where cross burnings were used to intimidate civil rights activists. Twenty years later, when he was elected to Congress, he made national news for pushing to finally prosecute the mastermind of a KKK killing that happened when he was in college. But we are not here in these places now. In this hearing... He brought up an arrest that happened just the day before. A man had placed a bomb along the route of a Martin Luther King Day march in Spokane, Washington. News reports identified a suspect as a member of the same white supremacist group that influenced Oklahoma City bomber Timothy McVeigh. I urge you, Mr. Chairman, to hold a hearing examining the homeland security threat posed by anti-government and white supremacist groups. I yield back. Over the next eight years, Thompson and other Democrats would keep asking for that hearing on domestic terrorism. They'd never get it. I called up Congressman Thompson on Skype at his office in Bolton, Mississippi, the same town that elected him mayor nearly 50 years ago. There are about 500 people who live in this little town. So I bet you must know every single one of them, more or less. Not only do I know them, I know their business. They know my business. There are no secrets. (laughs) (laughs) We talked about how it felt to struggle to get his colleagues to pay attention to this threat of right-wing terrorism. Well, you know, it was frustrating, to be honest with you, because I knew this problem was growing in America, and somehow our committee was missing the opportunity to address it. And that's unfortunate. But in 2019, Democrats took control of the House, and Benny Thompson took control of the Homeland Security Committee. And finally, uh, after I became chairman, we held a hearing. And it was only in this hearing that members of Congress and the public get a chance to see and hear for the first time uh, what was going on. This hearing and other Democrat-led oversight hearings got the FBI to finally acknowledge the serious threat of white supremacist terrorism. They said that, quote, racially motivated violent extremism was now as big a threat as ISIS. But these hearings didn't turn up a lot of details on exactly what the FBI was doing to deal with that threat on the ground, like the number of agents or cases or arrests. So I asked the FBI agent in charge of counterterrorism for the Newark field office, Joe Denahan. I think there's really been a a surge in what we assess as, as racially motivated violent extremism, both here in New Jersey and across the nation. Um, I think a lot of the profiles of the subjects where we have seen conduct successful attacks are younger males, uh, all of them really radicalized online. Now that the velocity of those threats and successful attacks appears to be increasing, we obviously um, dedicate a greater number of resources to that threat. Well, and when you talk about that, um, dedicating a greater number of resources, 
Can you share anything uh, in the way of numbers, something to kind of just concretely get a sense of what that looks like? Yeah, unfortunately, I can't give any specifics on that um, in terms of our uh, personnel or assets, but I can tell you that there is a tremendous emphasis put on this. Uh, we recognize that the threat is evolving, and we're evolving with it. No question about it. And just to be clear, um, why is it that you can't give more details on that? You know, I'm not comfortable talking about, you know, the number of agents that we have working a specific threat. So, no numbers. And then there's the term itself, racially motivated violent extremism. Why call it that? Are we primarily talking about white supremacist terrorism? I mean, no question that, you know, white racially motivated extremism is a very serious problem. Well, what else uh, fits into that? uh, What he isn't saying is the whole point of the term racially motivated violent extremism is that they are not just talking about white supremacists who've been responsible for more plots and attacks in the last few years than any other kind of terrorist in our database. What happened was, in 2017, an FBI document was leaked to Foreign Policy magazine about something they called black identity extremists. The FBI defined them as anyone using violence, quote, in response to perceived racism and injustice in American society, in particular, police brutality. It was so broad, former FBI agent Mike German said, basically, it's black people who scare them. When Congressman Thompson heard about it, not from the FBI, but from reading about it in the press, he wondered if it was really about countering terrorism at all. You know, I went through COINTELPRO in the 60s, where the FBI kind of spying on people of color. And so they said, look, are we trying to unfairly target uh, black people and black organizations again? This was a scandal, and the FBI said it got rid of the black identity extremist category. But in 2019, more FBI documents were leaked to reporter Ken Klippenstein, and they showed that the FBI had really just taken the black identity extremists and the white supremacists and put them both in one combined category, racially motivated violent extremism. Can you say with confidence now that the FBI is not focusing on so-called black identity extremists as a, as a terrorist threat and potentially going after well, activists? No, I can't. No, I can't. <laughs> hmm. uh, I know. And why not? I, you're the, the head of the oversight committee looking at them. Why can't you sort of say it with confidence well, that I you know? I can't say it because, you know, a lot of what I found out as a member of Congress is there's a term a need to know. Hmm. So even though you might be in a classified setting and supposedly have top secret clearances, there are still certain information that if an agency decides uh, for whatever reason, you don't need to know it. Uh, In all probability, they're not going to tell you. The FBI's lack of transparency is why we built our own domestic terror database. And it's also why the most important thing this Congress did on domestic terrorism might be something that's barely been noticed. Tucked into the National Defense Authorization Act, on page 957, there's language that requires the FBI to, for the first time, lay out in detail its domestic terrorism data— describing every incident, assessment, and investigation since 2009, and breaking them down by category, and saying exactly how many agents are working each threat. That data was due to Congress right as we released this story. Why would you have to pass an act in Congress to get somebody to collect data that ought to be part of one's job? Mm-hmm. Well, needless to say, uh, we had to take it to that level. And you had to get it in the defense spending bill, too, right? <laughs> yeah, well, you know, it, it's what you call a little home cooking. 
as Congressman Thompson waits for the results, he's worried that attention is again being diverted away from right-wing terrorism, this time by President Trump. In the midst of the recent protests over racism and police brutality, President Trump tweeted he would designate Antifa, short for anti-fascist, a terrorist organization, even though the FBI says Antifa is really more of an ideology than a group. He's president of the United States, and he should lead this country based on what the facts are at the time he's presented with them. Thompson says he hasn't seen any evidence of a connection between Antifa and violence at the recent protests. Whereas when we spoke, a right-wing extremist who was obsessed with the coming civil war had just been charged with killing a federal security officer near a protest in Oakland. And I'm glad that the law enforcement officials have identified and apprehended that individual. But he should let the professionals do their job. That story was from Reveal's Stan Alcorn. And just to be clear, the president does not have the power to designate terrorist groups. Still, since his tweet, there have been multiple reports of the FBI interrogating protesters about their political views and what they know about Antifa. Before we go, I want to remind you that we're just one week away from launching our first ever serial, American Rehab. Chapter one begins with a look inside a rehab that sends people to work without pay and calls it therapy. Then we'll trace the origins of this type of rehab to a dangerous cult that started in the 1950s and came to a crashing end after performing mass sterilizations on its members and using a rattlesnake to attack one of its most vocal critics. We launch American Rehab on July 4th. You can hear it on your local public radio station or right here on the podcast. Just make sure you subscribe to the Reveal podcast feed. This week's show was produced by Stan Alcorn and Priska Neely and edited by Jan Chian and Taki Telenidis with help from Esther Kaplan and Sue Oh. Special thanks to our partners at Type Investigations, David Nywert, Darren Ancrum, and Sarah Bluestain. Victoria Baronetsky is our general counsel. Our production manager is Najib Amini. Our sound design team is the dynamic duo, Jay Breezy, Mr. Jim Briggs, and Fernando Mamanyo Arudam. This week's show was mixed and scored by Ramteen Arablui with help from Amy Mustafa. Our CEO is Krista Scharfenberg. Matt Thompson is our editor-in-chief. Our executive producer is Kevin Sullivan. Our theme music is by Camarado, Lightning. Support for reveals provided by the Reva and David Logan Foundation, the John D. and Catherine T. MacArthur Foundation, the Jonathan Logan Family Foundation, the Ford Foundation, the Heising Simons Foundation, the Democracy Fund, and the Ethics and Excellence in Journalism Foundation. Reveal is a co-production of the Center for Investigative Reporting and PRX. I'm Al Edson, and remember, there is always more to the story.